0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Our scripture reading today will be Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. But before we hear the reading of God's word, let us pray and seek his blessing. Father, we come before you this morning as the one who raises the dead, as the one who calls into existence light where it previously did not exist father may your word produce light in our hearts this morning for those who have never believed may it be the dawning of a new light and for those who have been overwhelmed by fears and anxieties father may it be the re-emerging of a light almost forgotten bring them out of that dark night of the soul through the proclamation of the good news of your risen Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. This is the very word of God. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, Here, for he has risen as he said, come and see the place where they lay him. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the reading of God's word. It is interesting to see that when the women learned that Jesus had risen from the dead, we are told that they left with fear and great joy. In the recent weeks, I think we've known something of that fear. I've heard the, the days that we are living in described as unprecedented. People simply cannot remember a time when the nation was shut down by a pandemic in the way that it has been this year. They can think back to maybe a, a pandemic back in 1918, which not many of us remember. Or they can think back to a a terrorist attack like 9-11 that that shut down the the nation for a few days. But to see the nation shut down for a month and to to think that the shutdown could linger on for, for weeks, if not months ahead, it is unprecedented. And yet, while people describe it as unprecedented... At the same time, it is all too familiar. The crisis that we are currently in is a health crisis. People fear for their health. This is a virus that makes people ill and and even takes lives. People are, are dying. People who we know, people who we love, and we fear for their health. We're fearful of those who are vulnerable, catching the disease. It's why we are staying at home. Not so much to protect ourselves, but to protect those who are most at risk. But there's nothing new about a health crisis. Health has been an issue from day one. It was Moses who who said that a man's years are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80 And yet, throughout much of human history, life expectancy has been significantly less. We are frail beings. And plagues and pestilences come, and they threaten us. They threaten us with a power that we cannot withstand, a power we cannot control. So to be facing a health crisis is nothing new, but... But this is not only a health crisis, it is also a, a relationship crisis. Because we are locked at home, be, because we, we cannot get out and, and see our friends, we are cut off from those relationships that sustain us, those relationships that in, encourage us. We, we thank God for the technology that allows us to connect in, in some way. But I think we can all admit by this point it is not the same. To gather in a small group online is not the same thing as gathering in someone's living room or around a, a kitchen table. Our relationships have been harmed. We are in a, a relationship crisis, but again, there's nothing new about a relationship Crisis. It has been said for years that, that loneliness and isolation are an epidemic of their own in our country, long before the coronavirus. We live in an age where, where people know loneliness. Where to have even a single friend is, is sometimes considered an unusual luxury. So we know what it is to, to feel alone, to feel Isolated, disconnected from those around us. But not only is it a health and and relationship crisis, it is also an economic crisis. Even as Rodney prayed, there are those in our own congregation who have lost their jobs or have been temporarily furloughed from their work. And we've only seen the beginning of the economic repercussions. We don't know exactly what the future holds, but, but we know that, that many small businesses are, are wondering if they will exist a year from now. And those who work for those small businesses are wondering if they will have jobs. It has become a very real fear whether or not we will be able to make ends meet, whether we will be able to, to keep food on the table and a roof over our heads, things that that for so much of the uh, time we have taken for granted, we have now seen the fragility of our supposed economic security. And so we live in an economic crisis. But again, it's nothing new. For many in the, the world today, economic crisis is the daily norm. And even here in the United States, a a nation of unprecedented wealth, there are those who have lived with food and shelter insecurity for as long as they can remember. And so it is brought to the fore something that was always there just below the surface. And we add to this the emotional strain, the, the emotional or, or our mental crisis that is sure to come. When people go through stress, when they go through trauma, it has repercussions. I heard a pastor this week talking to other pastors and, and warning them that they were going to see the effects of this crisis a year, two, three down the road. Because they've been eating into their emotional capital. This is true not only of of pastors, but it's true of of all of us. Stress is a burden. Anxiety is is, is a burden that we must bear, that that wears us out, that brings us to the the point of exhaustion. And we will see the, the, the mental and emotional consequences of this in the months and years ahead. So while this particular crisis is in some sense unprecedented, It is not all that unusual. It has merely exposed the realities of life in this present evil age. We live as fallen people in a fallen world. And the brokenness that surrounds us while it has hemmed us in tightly for the moment. It is always there. And when this present pandemic passes, it will not go away. And the question that we are tempted to ask in the face of such a crisis is why? I saw it even today watching videos uh, on my computer. I, I saw pastors discussing this very question. Why? Why would God allow this? Why would the omnipotent, almighty, why would the all-wise, all-good, all-loving God allow such a thing to occur? And unfortunately, too many pastors and self-proclaimed prophets are more than willing to offer answers. I've seen those who who have announced this pandemic as God's judgment against our sin. And depending on what side of the aisle they are is what sins they choose to talk about. For some, this is God's judgment against homosexuality, or this is God's judgment against abortion. For others, it is his judgment against our racism and our rampant social injustice. But others see it not as judgment so much as a nudge towards revival. They believe that this is the tool that God is going to use to bring people back to himself. May it be so. But the truth is we don't know what God is doing. There is no prophet of God today to to interpret for us the unfolding of history. We can't say in detail exactly what God is up to. And that may unsettle you, but I want you to hear me say this morning that it's okay that we don't know. Job's friends needed an explanation, and they offered one, and God rebuked them. Better to sit in silence and not pontificate about what God might be doing but to rather meditate on who God is. For while we do not know what God is up to specifically, we know that God is at work. And we know that he is at work for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Those are not just slogans. Those are not just convenient words to to use at the end of a prayer. That is our hope. God is at work for his glory and for our good. And that is precisely the hope that is secured by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Look with me again at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. Here at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we we have those verses that we so often refer to as the Great Commission. And when we think about these verses, we we so often focus on the the commission itself that that comes in verse 19. when, When Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if you've been around Trinity very long at all, you know we take those verses very seriously. They are at the heart of our our mission statement. We exist to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ who can go into the world obeying Him, loving God with all their heart, and loving their neighbor as themselves. We, we, We hold this commission close to our heart. But this morning, I want us to focus not on the commission itself, but on what Jesus says right before it, on the foundation upon which that commission rests. Look with me at verse 18. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the outcome of his resurrection. Paul tells us in the first chapter of Romans that by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has been declared the Son of God in power. Only he doesn't say declared as our English translations so often put it. He says he has been appointed. We're afraid of that language. We're we're afraid of saying that he has been appointed the Son of God in power because we don't want anyone to to come to the mistaken conclusion that, that Jesus somehow became the Son of God at the resurrection. He did not. John makes that clear. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the living Word who was with the Father even before the ages began. He is the eternal Word who who became incarnate, who was born to Mary, who lived and who died upon the cross and who rose again. And yet it was by his resurrection that he became the Son of God with Power. It's the same thing we see in the letter to the Hebrews when we're told that Jesus became perfect. He became the complete Savior. He had to go to the cross. It's, it's what we see in his anguished prayer in the garden. Jesus prayed to the Father, If there is any way, take this cup from me. And the Father's silence was deafening. Father's plan had to be executed. Jesus had to drink the cup. He had to go to the cross. But because he went to the cross as the innocent victim, as the substitute, because he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, the Father justified him. The Father exalted him. The Father appointed him, the Son of God, with Power and seated him at the right hand of the majesty on high from where he will now rule over all things for the glory of his own name and the good of his people for all eternity. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And it is the fulfillment of the, the entire storyline of, of Matthew's gospel if you just work your way through Matthew's gospel, you will, you will notice that it begins with a genealogy. And that seems strange to, to modern readers. But what's the point? Matthew wants us to see that, that Jesus is not only the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the, the promised king from the line of Judah. And this is the truth that is, that is proclaimed when the Magi come seeking the one who has been born king of the Jews. It's why it set Herod on edge, because a king had been born. And not only do we see it in the, the coming of the Magi, but Jesus himself declares that in his public ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand, calling people to repent and believe the good news of this kingdom. And it's that same gospel that he sends out the twelve to proclaim in chapter 10. He he sends them out with his own authority to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus tells his opponents the miracles that he is doing and the the exorcisms that he is is, um, carrying out. Setting people free from their demonic possession and oppression he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. He is the kingdom, for he is the king. That's what we saw last Sunday in the triumphal entry as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Yes, he did that to fulfill the the prophecy given by Zechariah, but it was not an arbitrary prophecy. It was a picture of of how Solomon became king when, when David sent him into Jerusalem on his own mule that he might be anointed king and take the throne. Jesus comes as the greater son of David to take the throne. Only he does it not by military conquest. He does it through a cross. He gives his life as the ransom for his people. And in so doing, he finds life indeed. The Father raises him up, exalts him in glory, and seats him at the right hand of the majesty on high, giving to him all authority in heaven and on earth. That is the gospel. That Jesus is king. That Jesus has taken the throne. Now as the author of Hebrews reminds us, we do not yet see all things in submission to him. We live in what theologians refer to as the, the tension of the already and the not yet. Jesus is the enthroned king But his kingdom is still in rebellion in large measure. All things are not yet subdued. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead gives us a glimpse of how things will end. Jesus' resurrection from the dead tells us that his enemies will be defeated. Even death. Death one day, will be defeated. And him who wields the power of death will be defeated. And those who were held captive by the fear of death, they will be set free through faith in him. And that tells us that the current crisis won't last forever. It tells us that, that the crises that, that mark this present evil age won't last forever. They will not have the last word. The good news of the gospel is that there is coming a day when all things will be made new. I don't know what the next weeks or or months or years or even centuries hold. I don't know precisely what God is doing But I know the God who controls history is the God who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And therefore I know how the story ends. I know that the slight and momentary afflictions that we suffer here and now cannot compare with the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I know there is coming a day when this perishable body will be shed, not that we might be unclothed, but that we might be further clothed, that that we who are weak might put on power, that, that we who are shamed might put on glory, that we who are mortal might put on immortality, so that even now, In our present condition, with all the unknowns that swirl around us, we can say with absolute confidence, without absolute assurance, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. God will keep us here as long as he has work for us to do, as long as we can serve the glory of his name and the good of his people. But when he takes us home, it will be sweet. It will be good. It will be gain. And therefore, we have nothing to fear from a disease that can merely kill our body. We have nothing to fear from, from losing our economic security here. For we have treasure in heaven that moth and rust and viruses cannot touch. We have An assurance that goes beyond this life into the age to come, world without end. That is the good news that we must take refuge in this morning. That is the good news that is secured by by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We, We don't just remember this day because it's a day on the church calendar. We remember this day because it is the foundation of the living hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But that hope is not only for us. It is the hope you have to offer to your neighbors. Those around you who are currently living in fear and anxiety. Those who who tremble at the unknown. You have the opportunity to to share with them this same hope. You are comforted that you might be a comfort to others. You are filled with hope that it might overflow to the hopeless. And so in this time of, of isolation, may we be a people who overflow with hope. Maybe we can't gather together, but you see your neighbors on the road, you you see them out in the yard. This is your opportunity to talk to them and to ask them how they are doing. And this is your opportunity to confess to them the reason for the hope that you have. That doesn't mean you have to be Ravi Zacharias or or, uh, some other great apologist. It simply means you have to point people to Christ. The risen Lord, as the reason for your hope in the midst of crisis. You see, all other securities could be taken away in an instant. Who would have thought that the American economy would come crashing down? Who would have thought that a, that a virus that, that started in some obscure providence of China could, could come to the United States and, and, and lock us in our own homes? Who would have thought? And yet that is our reality. Because all other securities, all other hopes, all other refuges are mere illusion. The only true hope, the only living hope is found in Easter. It is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because his resurrection means that death has been canceled. His resurrection means that death no longer poses any threat. His resurrection means that so long as we are here, we live for Christ. But when we die, it will be great gain. And because we have this hope, because this hope fills us through the ministry of the word We now live in a peace that surpasses understanding. And not only do we have this peace, but we have the opportunity to share this peace with others. I don't know what lies ahead, but I know that in Christ, our resurrected Lord, in him, we have everything we need for everything we've been called to do. Our joy is unassailable because it is bound to the one who has been raised imperishable. And because he is imperishable, our hope is imperishable. And one day we will join him in glory to celebrate for all eternity the great things that he has done. And for this Easter morning, let us let this word, this gospel, fill us up. Let it dwell in us richly, that we might know that peace, and that that peace might overflow to us, to our families and to our neighbors, to the praise of his glory and to the good of his church for all eternity. And because such a hope is ours this morning, that is why we call Easter. The ultimate good news. Do you believe that? Let us believe it together. Pray with me. Father God, you are a good and gracious God. And we come before you now humbly asking that you would allow this gospel to fill us up, to dwell in us richly, that we might know with full assurance that peace, and that hope that surpass all understanding. Do this good work in us, that you might do this good work in others through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.